I walked into Hoog's office and I said, dude, are you having fun? We're mountain bikers first, right? And the whole company is built on the premise of riders first and we make stuff we want to ride. What's up, you gorgeous listeners? It's your boy, Mr. Pickles, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In the past few years, I've become super addicted to bicycling and mountain biking. And recently, I've got to meet some amazing people like Jeff Lenofsky. You can check him out on YouTube at Trail Boss. Really love his videos. And also Sonia Looney. Uh, she coaches basketball star Reggie Miller in mountain biking. Really impressive. Both those people check him out. I also got to do a YouTube video with Seth Bike Hacks. He makes amazing videos. Check him out as well on YouTube. So I figured, what's next? Why not reach out to people who make these bikes and learn how the hell do you actually make a bike? So I reached out to Chris Conroy of Yeti Bicycles. They're the premium mountain bike makers today. This is what I have at home. And their bikes have won a ton of competitions and voted best bike of the year many, many times. And their company's gone through three acquisitions, tons of changes, and every day their people are all allowed to go mountain biking during the work hours. In this episode, you're gonna learn three major things. Number one, how to decide which products to create for your brand. Number two, what does Yeti do differently to recruit and hire? This is definitely something that I've started implementing in our own company at Sumo. And number three, how did Yeti become the Rolls Royce of mountain bikes? A lot of interesting things there and more. So let's kick it off first with the biggest risk Chris made at Yeti. Enjoy. Yeah, I would say the biggest came six years ago. And it's interesting because it corresponds with our growth almost exactly. We were, you know, in a position where we were always playing catch up. We had some vendors that were delivering at the highest level. I Meaning quality wasn't where we wanted. Delivery wasn't where we wanted it. And we had just come out with a new suspension technology called Switch. And it was super new and novel in the industry. And it worked great. And we had kind of a parallel path of what's now our suspension called Switch Infinity. And we'd also moved to a new carbon fiber vendor. And that vendor was crushing it. Great quality, did everything they said they were going to do. They were delivering on time. And, you know, I walked into Hoog's office and I said, dude, are you having fun? Because we're mountain bikers first, right? And the whole company is built on the premise of riders first and we make stuff we want to ride. And he's like, no, man, this is miserable. And we were chasing some price points. We were listening to distributors, listening to dealers. And now that we don't need to listen to them, but we need to listen to ourselves first. And we made the decision at that point that we would only focus on carbon fiber bikes with high technology differentiation. And we switched everything. And at that point, we had like three models once we cut out all the other stuff we were doing. And that was a huge risk. We literally sat down with the staff and said, you know, here's where we're going. Who are going to be here no matter what? But half of you guys might not be here if it doesn't work. And I just want to be super clear about that. Because we have awesome staff, everybody's like, yeah, rock on. We're there with you. And we made that change. And over that period of time, we've grown 30% a year for five years. So it's been huge success. Could have gone the other way. You're like, Brian, you're definitely getting fired. <laughs> that guy in the corner. It's funny, in retrospect, it seems easy. But at the time, you had to give up revenue and you were making a sacrifice. It was pretty gnarly. Yeah. And not only that, but you know, as you grow as an organization, you find that people that have been with you sometimes a long time don't grow with the company. And that's a tough realization when you say, okay, we're a different company than we were five years ago when you started with us or 10 years ago. And now we're five years into the new model and you don't fit anymore because either their skills didn't progress with the company or the company needed different things. And you learn a lot in that process. It's pretty humanizing. I think the purest form and the best form of success is make stuff for yourself. Like, yes, listen to your customers, listen to your partners, all these things, but make something that you enjoy for yourself. 
I'm glad you said, I'm like, yeah, I want to keep doing that with the things that we work on. A joke, and it really isn't a joke. We're not smart enough to figure out the market. <laughs> We're just a bunch of mountain bikers that love what we do. Our theory is that if it gets out of the walls of Yeti and our crazy opinionated product development team all agrees on the same thing and we go to market with it, then we're going to find a number of like-minded souls out there that share the same product values. And if we don't, rock on. There's tons of other brands. And as long as you're on a mountain bike, we're good. There's the two things I'm wondering with that is that how do you balance the whole like corporate and the change thing that just is necessary as you get larger? Because I'm sure a few of you guys are like, yo, Chris, this sucks, man. We didn't used to have meetings. And why do we have to do this stuff? Like, how have you balanced the corporate life but with the growth? Yeah, the meeting is a funny one, right? Because I had worked at bigger bike companies prior to this. And when I came in, I'm like, okay, no meetings. Everyone just work. I don't want to have meetings. And somewhere along the way, I said, Chris, sometimes we have to have meetings because we need to communicate with each other. And we're still pretty meeting averse in our company. We maintain the corporate culture by doing a few things. One, we hire people that are of the mountain bike scene. We don't hire people and say, okay, your new job is to go to the events or to go to XYZ. We hire them because we met them at that event and that we know that they're integral to the fabric of the community. And so when you do that and you have those types of people roaming the hall, I think it figures itself out. As an organization, you'd walk in, you say, okay, it's cool. It's laid back. They shut it down for an hour and a half every day to go ride their bikes. They're committed, but that isn't enough when you get to a certain scale. I mean, you have to be super high functioning. And if one person in the organization isn't pulling their weight, it's apparent very quickly. Yeah, that's a great point. We've had people, and I've definitely seen it where it's like, they come in for an interview. I'm like, have you used any of our stuff? Like, no. I'm just like, what are you doing? Why didn't you put in a little bit of the effort? Yeah, I start every interview question. It's like, tell me what you know about Yeti. Is that your first thing you talk to people about? Always. And if they're like, whoa, and they start hemming and hawing, I'm like, one, they didn't do their homework, so they're lazy. But secondly, you know, we really need somebody who associates with who we are and vibes with the brand ethic because in the absence of that, it's just a worker, right? It is funny because, you know, your brand with Yeti and our companies with Sumo, people are like, man, they must have so much fun and they're biking for an hour and a half. So they come and they're like, all right, let's drink and we're partying and all of a sudden I'm like, you realize we also do work here. They're not thinking that it's actually a business. I mean, it's funny because, you know, we have a pretty lax culture as it's related. In fact, I just got back from pouring a beer from our four taps that are back in our, in our break room. I have no issue with someone pulling a beer at three o'clock where it becomes an issue is if somebody isn't crushing it at the highest level. How do you hold them to those standards? I know that's something I've seen with companies as they've changed, like, oh, okay, this person's fine, or they're doing good enough for now. How are you holding your people to those standards? You know, I would say that I'm not the hard ass, it's just not the way I'm wired, but it's the guys that surround us, right? It isn't necessarily me and Hook saying, hey, you have to meet the standard. It's everybody else that works here, that they know what the expectation is in terms of product quality, the way we represent ourselves on our website, our print, our digital. And those things are unnegotiable. And if anybody doesn't live up to that, whether it's because they're drinking three beers instead of one during the day or they're coming in late or whatever, it's self-policing when you have that kind of environment. And I would say that I would put the credit on this director level positions rather than me and Hoog being hard asses because they're the ones that are saying, hey, if we're going to do this and we all agree that we're going to do it, we all have to act and perform in a certain way. With what you were talking about earlier, where you've taken big risks and big bets, like, hey, we're going to go all carbon, we're all going to go super high tech, which ones have not worked out? You said you've had a good amount of mistakes within Yeti. I mean, they're almost embarrassing in retrospect, because they're so patently obvious, 
bad designs. We had one bike that predated what became our ASR7, and this is, I don't know, eight, nine years ago. And we had this idea, it'd be really cool to do a carbon fiber rear end, one-sided swing arm so that we could minimize weight and handle some of the packaging issues related with cranks. And the chain force was such a disproportionately large effect on the frame. And it just became this super flexy, wasn't working. And we still push it with the idea. We cut carbon tooling. And this is when we're a small company, right? Because again, like when we decide we're going to do something, we go big. And it was keeping me up at night and it was keeping Hoog up at night. And again, came in and it's like, I looked at him, I'm like, we can't go to the market with that. I know we're hundred grand into tooling on it, but that's not a Yeti product. And he agreed. It's an atrocity and it would have been detrimental to the brand. And somehow you just kind of keep trying to fix a problem and you make it worse. And, you know, that was a really good lesson for us. We're in the times that we miss, we have the humility to come and say, hey, we're done. We can't put good money after bad. It's time to move on. That didn't work out. Great idea, great concept, poor execution, or even poor concept sometimes. So that's part of taking risk is you have to know when to say enough's enough. Well, the two things with that is I think myself, a lot of the times, and a lot of other people would probably be like, well, let's just put it out and see what the response is. Yeah, but you can't do that and maintain brand purity. There's an expectation that you build. We call the Yeti owners, the Yeti tribe, and it's bigger than us. And it's like being a matriarch in a family, right? You have certain expectations to your kids that you also have for people that buy your product. It would have been out of character and it would have been a sellout for us to have done that to let the market guess what we should do as a brand just isn't the way we roll. Going back to how did you actually decide that? You're like, all right, we are going to choose these two things, carbon and technology. Because I think a lot of companies are like, I'm going to pick a target market, but I don't really want to give up everyone or I'm going to focus my product line, but I want to have all these options. Well, I mean, it started with how I chose my career path, right? It was never to make a boatload of money or anything else. I was a mountain biker. I started working in mountain bike shops. and moved to the mountains because that's where I wanted to be. I met a woman who I married who was a mountain person. And we ride mountain bikes, we ski, we fly fish. That's who we are as people. And we built our career around that. And so the decision was as much a lifestyle decision as anything else. And the decision was, this isn't fun. It's hard. And we're chasing our tail. And it's like a relationship breakup, right? It was a guy that I manufactured product with for 15 years. And, you know, you just had to say, look, it's not working. This is a breakup. But it was also liberating, that liberating feeling that, okay, we got out of something bad. Whatever happens, I don't care, but we're on to new things. And kind of the excitement of having to make it is the same excitement we had when we bought the brand 19 years ago. And we just literally slid all the chips on the table. It's like, this is everything I have. And it's going to work or I'm going to lose everything, but I'm willing to make that risk. And so we just did it again. What was the story about Yeti before? And then I know you did acquire it. I had some friends in Colorado at the Volant Ski Company that made the steel ski. They said, hey, we want to do a counter-seasonal business. We want you to run it when we do that. So they presented a few opportunities and none of them were right. And I just was talking to uh, Greg Bagney, who is VP of Marketing over at Schwinn. And I said, Bagney, you guys are crushing the brand. I've got somebody who wants to buy it. And he said, okay. And we put together the deal and I moved from Chicago back to Colorado. And they said, okay, you can pick your whole team. But you got to take this guy. And that guy was Steve Hugendorn. Hoog is his nickname. Awesome, right? Hoog's brilliant. We're yin and yang at Yeti. And that was kind of June, July of 01. And then we're trying to scramble and put together a group to buy it. And by group, I mean friends, family, 
whatever we had. Then 9-11 hit. Nobody wanted to invest in anything. I basically went with my hat in hand and said, hey, this is what we have. We believe in the brand. We are super committed. Please accept our offer. And Mark Le did. It was just gracious on his behalf. You know, at that time, he said, hey, you guys remind us a lot of the way we were when we were at Apple during that time. A lot of great energy. And we were able to buy the brand. When it's your life, you take the risk sometime, right? Sometimes you have to be pushed into that corner to say, yeah, I really believe in what we're doing here. And I really believe in the people we're working with and believe in the brand. And sometimes you got to be pushed in the corner and be a little scared about it for it to work. What was your plan when you, the ski guys were like, hey, let's go buy this thing? What was your thought? I mean, I thought counter-seasonal business made sense strategically. I had no idea at that point that they were a bit of a financial train wreck at the time, but it made sense. You know, Colorado brand, ski brand, high-end, you know, they were into racing. So it had a lot of similarities. It felt like a good mix. And I knew some of the guys, Hank Cashwell, who ran it at the time, and Mark Soderberg, who went on to BOA. Great guys, super smart guys. So I felt good about the management team as well. And I just thought that we could grow Yeti pretty substantially over the years with that kind of support. What happened from there? So you and Hoog bought it out completely. Well, we had friends and family, right? So Hoog and I actually had a pretty small ownership stake at that point. We were kind of sweat equity. You know, we were able to buy them out at pretty good multiples. I think everyone was happy with the investment they made in Yeti. The Yeti brand of bicycles, it's the Rolls Royce of bicycles. It's like when people think of Yeti, they're like, revere it brand to me, I'm always curious and fascinated with it. It's like, how did that become? Is it from having influencers or great bikers win races? Like, how did you guys able to engineer a brand that is so highly respected? Yeah, I think there are two things. We have two facets of our company that on paper are completely different, but they're very complementary. We have the race side of our business and the race side of our business is everything you can imagine. Best racers, best products. We race because it betters the breed. We think that there's a certain humility that comes to racing. If your shit doesn't work and you're out on the race circuit, everybody knows it. And so there's a real honesty that comes out of racing that we really like. And then, of course, you have the presence market. You guys win races. You know, it proves the product can operate at the highest levels. You know, so that's important as well. But our racers are also core to our product development. So they're coming back and saying, hey, I need this. I can do things you guys can't do. And I need this, right? So it really allows us to build product that performs at the highest, highest level. And how does that translate to somebody who might not ride at that level? I always liken it to getting into a German car, right? You shut the door and it sounds a certain way, right? Step on the accelerator, it feels a certain thing. You drive and you take the corner and it's tight and everything feels performance. And I can never drive a 911 the way that a professional race car driver, not even close, like 20%, right? But I can feel all those subtle things that you get from great product. And that's the translation we hope comes through on our product. The other side, not performance related, is what we call the Yeti tribe. And the Yeti tribe is not performance. It's messier. It's lifestyle. It's about going out, riding your bike, having a beer afterwards, hanging out with your buddies, grilling out, camping over the weekend. That's the mountain bike lifestyle, and we're dirtbags first and foremost. <laughs> we spend our weekends, for sure. In 2001, we decided to do what we called a Yeti tribe gathering. And I knew about a tribe gathering because I was around in Yeti when the urban myth was that the Germans at one point did a Yeti tribe gathering 
purely organically, wasn't company-based. And they had 200 people hang out, talk about their Yetis. And I just thought that concept was so cool. And John Parker, who was the founder of Yeti, used to always talk about the tribe. And it really resonated with me. And I thought, well, we need to get the Yeti tribe back together. So getting the band back together, right? And we started out, it was really humble. It was 12 people, maybe. Then the next year it was 15, and then it was 20. And then we started putting some effort behind it where we had an event organizer who works for us. She put it together and we catered stuff and we charged 100 bucks to show up. And last year in Crested Butte, we had 450 people and it's dogs and kids and bikes and stupid human tricks and just tons of fun, right? That, in a lot of ways, to me, is the core of the brand. That you can't duplicate. That happens over 20 years of believing and building the tribe. They're devotees, and we call them Yeti freaks because they're freaky about the brand, and it's awesome. What do you think, like, if someone maybe doesn't have a bicycle company, maybe they have, like, glasses company or software company. I've never made a bicycle. But I've heard some things that are really interesting, like there's one factory in China that has a monopoly on seats. Yeah, I mean, when you think about what we define as a Yeti bike, it really is, is the frame, right? The frame is what the wheels go on and all the parts hang off of. And that really is the chassis. And the way that we design the suspension is really what defines how that chassis rides. And then we handpick the parts that go around that. We have a long-time relationship and their co-title sponsorship of our team with Fox Racing, and they make the best suspension. So we've been fortunate to have really deep relationships with those guys. Same with Shimano. You know, they've been our race team sponsor from back in the day. It's critical that we have those long-term relationships with vendors that trust what we do, we trust what they do, and we work together, you know, because we always believe that investments and brand investments and in what we're doing they pay off in decades. They don't pay off in years. And you have to have the patience and deep working knowledge and understanding to work with your vendors, to work with your customers, to work with your staff to get there. That's a great point. And how does someone actually make a bicycle? Yeah, so carbon fiber is made, it's molded, and there are different techniques to do that. But imagine a clamshell mold in the simplest terms, right? And so you have one half of the frame cut into the mold and the other half on the other side of the mold. And then you take carbon fiber and you lay it into the mold. And there's an internal bladder, which can be silicone or anything that will expand. It can be foam in some cases. And you heat that whole thing up. So it's like you stick it in the oven and then you pressurize it. So that pressure then pushes out against that carbon fiber and the carbon fiber material is held together with a matrix and that melts and turns into what ultimately looks like a carbon frame, right? And each one of those carbon frames could have 200 individually cut pieces in different orientations in order to get the kind of strength and wall thickness requirements you need depending on what your application is. So that's an extremely simplified <laughs> version of how it works. But then they take those frames out of the mold. They do some handwork, meaning sanding or whatever. Then it goes to paint. And then you have graphic supply. It is interesting. One thing you were saying as you were talking about building bikes is that you and your partner kind of set the vision and the tone for a lot of things. And then you sound like you let your guys and girls loose to go do what they want. It seems like a lot of people nowadays that work for a company are like, oh, well, I should start my own company or I don't like management or what are they doing all day? And it doesn't seem like that's the case as much with your company. Well, I mean, I say that we turn them loose, but we have product development teams, you know, that are eight or nine people on each one of them. We rely heavily on the whole group. Steve and I sit in all those. So Hoog and I are hands-on. We really respect the group, but it's not a democracy. 
we really listen to what they say, but if we feel strongly about something, we'll go the way that we feel. And they understand that. I mean, everybody understands that that's the dynamic. It really doesn't happen much anymore that we have to pull the trump card because we've all been in the process for six months, right? And at the end, all of a sudden, they don't know what Hugh and I are thinking. We haven't done our job. But there's an understanding that it isn't horse by committee. You can't do product development that way. Do you remember the last time you had to pull the card? I do. And it was fairly recent. Straight up said, we're not doing it. Peace out. Drop the microphone. I would imagine they actually probably respect you more from that. Well, I I mean, sometimes they're like, I guess a fucking idiot. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I think sometimes if you make the right decisions over time, people trust that. But like I said, I mean, 95% of the time, staff here and the people on the product team are making that decision. It's pretty rare that Hugo and I have to step in and say, no way, we're not going to do that. With your guys' company, I think with a lot of companies, the temptation is, all right, we make these frames that are awesome. Let's make now shoes for mountain bikes and let's do shorts and hats and all this other stuff. We do apparel, but we did apparel because we couldn't find product out there that we thought was mountain bike specific. We had stuff that came over from the roadside and we had stuff that came over from moto, right? But there really wasn't any mountain bike specific product that we thought was crushing it. So five, six years ago, we took on apparel as well. And it's been a really strong category for us, but it isn't about a brand extension. It's a product story. It's about making product that makes a mountain bikers ride better, plain and simply. So sure, we do promotional stuff, hats, t-shirts, that kind of stuff. But it isn't part of our strategy to see how far we can push the Yeti brand. I would say that it's the opposite. We always ask, can we have fewer models and still service the market? Can we do less on the apparel side? Can we do less better? And trying to figure out what the limits of the brand are, because you can stretch it too far and break it. If you push into too many product categories too fast, because then you don't stand for anything. I love what you just said about pulling things back. You developed a bike for 100K that you guys didn't even ever put out. And is it just like what stuff's not selling or what stuff is not aligned with us? Well, ironically, I just got out of a meeting in the break room with a beer in my hand. We were talking about some upcoming models we have that we're releasing. Fully baked, 3D models done. We're supposed to commit to tooling on Friday. And we were talking about how that fit into the line. And if it wasn't in the line, what does that mean? And who's going to own that bike? We always ask this internally. Who in here is going to ride that bike if we have this one? And that's always kind of the barometer for us. It's like, yeah, people have this bike and this bike, but not that bike. Or that guy has these two bikes. But if there isn't anybody internally that we can identify as that would be their primary driver, their daily driver, then... We need to reconsider it. And we're in the process of doing that right now. And we have to decide on Friday. It's fully baked. We've put a year of development into it. Wow. And you might just say no go on the whole thing or you might just have to adjust it. Well, what we'll likely do is we'll say, okay, let's cut a tool and make one size of it. Let's continue the development on it, but let's not fully commit until we fully understand how we feel about that bike and its place in the market. I love what you were saying too. You're like, who's riding this bike? I think a lot of times we make this thing and I think you do make it for yourself. You're like, okay, am I even going to ride it? <laughs> it sounds like you guys are questioning that, which is staying true to the Yeti brand. In terms of time and all that stuff, is it about a year? Like what's the range of a cost to like invent a frame? Is it like millions of dollars? No, I mean, come on. What are the bike business? <laughs> no, I, I have no idea. Like that's why I was no, excited I'm, to talk with you. To tool up for a frame in production in four sizes, right? Because different mold for each size. 
you know, say you're 100 to 125K just in the molds. And then development costs depends on how you capture that, right? We don't quantify it that way because multiple times we'll have three or four models in development at the same time. So you could say the low side, it's 200,000 and it can be two to three times that depending on what you're trying to achieve. The one thing that I actually found kind of challenging was picking a bike. I didn't have a bike for about a year and I was able to get one. And I think with a lot of businesses, it's like, hey, if they just tried my product, they would love it. But when I went to ride mountain bikes, you know, I tried some Trek and I tried some Santa Cruz. It was actually, took me like a year and I'm like, they all feel so similar. How do you think people should think about buying a bike? Is it from having demo days that you guys do? Or Yeah, there's an experiential part of our brand that we feel very strongly about. And, you know, it starts with somebody being able to go to the races and they'll see our mechanic and some race companies will keep everyone out of the pits, right? Oh, we're working, we're racers. You know, we want them in talking to us and hanging out and feeling like they're part of the tribe. That also carries over to the demo fleet. So we have three guys that drive our demo vans and they're super professional. So kind of the setup and performance that we have on the race side carries over into our demo experience. But it also has more of a tribe feel, right? So somebody comes up and they feel comfortable. Our guy's going to talk to them about bikes and likely you're going to ride with them afterwards and crack a beer when the day's done and hang out with them and talk with them about the bikes. And I'm not saying ours is for everybody, but there's a very clear design intent on all of our bikes and you either jive with it or you don't. And fortunately, we've had a lot of luck with people jiving with it. That's awesome. In the future, is there any future parts of bikes that you're like, oh, this shit's going to be crazy in the future? Yeah, inevitably, you know, we're starting to see electronics, kind of real-time electronics affecting suspension. You know, so Fox is, is, has played with that a little bit. And there's accelerometers and things that you're finding in iPhones and that technology that's finding itself into suspension. And we try to solve a lot of things kinematically, you know, meaning with the hard points on a bike and how the links move through space and all that kind of stuff. And I think there's going to be some opportunity to handle some suspension with electronics and integration with every other device you have, right? So it becomes an extension of your electronic life. You know, certainly there's e-bikes are doing some of that. Suspension is being changed based on the brain and a shock might read. So my sense is that we're going to see more electronic integration in the future, but I don't really know what that means. Damn, that sounds cool. Where it's connect your bike is just auto connected to your phone. And then like, yeah. I'm starting to see a little bit on road bikes with some of the auto shifting. I mean, if you think of anything you see like in a Tesla, right, where everything is integrated, it isn't unreasonable to think that that could happen with mountain bike technology in the future. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you liked the episode. Here's two things I'd love for you to do. First, go say hi to Chris and Yeti Cycles on the interwebs at yetycycles.com or on Twitter at Yeti Cycles. Next, text someone you love them. Yo, dog. Let's ride a tandem bicycle down a mountain. <laughs> if you have any feedback about this episode, feel free to always let me know at Noah Kagan on the Twitter webs. Have a great day. What's your favorite outdoor activity? <laughs>